Okay, this morning we have uh, another cat who will share the Word of God. So allow ourselves to listen to the Word of God and let's allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. Let's welcome Cat Nate. Welcome, guys. Um, if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, we've been going through a series of knowing God. We're going through um, the different attributes, the different characteristics of who God is. And last week, we talked about, um, you know, not worrying. And one of the main things that Pastor Nathan, not me, Pastor Nathan Lee talked about was that perfect love casts out fear. And so today we'll be talking about that love per se. And um, if you have your Bibles with you, because um, you're supposed to bring your Bibles to church in case you guys didn't know that, um, please turn to uh, Genesis 29. That's we'll, where we'll be hanging out for the majority of our time together. So please turn with me to Genesis 29. If you are not that good of a Christian and didn't bring your Bible today, I do have it on the, on the PowerPoint. <laughs> One second. How do you use MacBooks anyway? Like, never use this for. Okay, so, um, so Genesis twenty nine, starting in verse thirteen. So you can just read along with me. Um, so starting verse thirteen. Oh, you don't have to read out loud, by the way. So just let me read. Okay, um, verse thirteen. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, or family, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you that, than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love, because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her. So if you're anyone below legal age, what that means is they slept together. Okay, like just get that out of the way. They slept together. Um, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant, Zilpah, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. Laban gave Rachel a servant, Bilhah, to be her maid. 
So Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. He then stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. Okay. Um, before we go any further, let's just dedicate this time to God. Um, dear Holy Father, we just thank you so much for this honor and privilege of going through your word. I just pray that um, may your presence be among us as we navigate through your word as it could get a re- really tricky and really confusing at times. But I pray that um, may just open the hearts and minds of each and every one here. I pray that you be the one to plant your word in our lives and just use me effectively and efficiently as much as you can. And um, may your word just flow smoothly and um, just have its desired effect on your people right now. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so a little bit of a history lesson before we move forward. So we have, I'm going to talk about two main characters in this passage. Um, First, we're going to talk about Jacob. That's very important we look at where Jacob's coming from in this story. So if you've read your Bibles before, any familiarity with the book of Genesis, um, Jacob's story starts in Genesis 25, but it's very important to know who Jacob's family was. So Jacob is actually the son of Isaac. If you don't know who Isaac is, you'll probably know who Abraham is. So Abraham is the person that God assigned to, I will make a big and great nation through you. But the problem was Abraham didn't have a son. So he prayed and pleaded with God and asked for a son. And then years, many years later in his old age, God gave him Isaac, his only son, who God asked him to sacrifice, and it stopped him right before he could, you know, um, kill his son. And now later on, Isaac has his own family, and he, um, his wife, Rebecca, bears him twins. And so this is where we find ourselves, back in Genesis 25, four chapters before what we just read. So it says this, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire to the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, Behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand, holding Esau's heel. Can you imagine that? Like, just two babies, like, coming out, and one's just, like, grabbing the heel of the other. Um, that's what this looks like, by the way. Um, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay. So pretty much what this shows is that Jacob, that's the meaning of his name, the supplanter. We don't hear that word used often. That's not the restaurant where you get all-you-can-eat soup and salad. That's soup plantation. But like, Supplanter means this. It comes from the Hebrew name Yaakov. That's how we get Jacob in English. Um, And what Yaakov means is this. It sounds a lot like what it means to take the place 
of something that wasn't yours. You take it by scheming and plotting. And if you go forward to Genesis 27, that's where you see Jacob deceiving Isaac. Because through this family, this is the family that God promised, I will make a big nation out of you. I will, I will deliver the Messiah through your lineage. And that was this family's blessing. And so what happened was that God promises to the eldest son always. But Jacob wanted that blessing. So what he did was when his father Isaac was poor of sight, he goes and he like puts these like gnarly, um, you know, arm things. And then like, you know, just to emulate having, you know, body hair. I don't know what's the big deal with body. But like, that's what he did. He goes in there. And then um, when Isaac tells him, like, come to me, son. And he, he asked him, like, can I touch your arm to make sure you're my son Esau? And then he said, yes, I'm Esau. And then he ge- gives him his blessing. So when the real brother comes in and finds out what went down, he wanted to kill Jacob. And so Jacob ran away to a faraway land because his mom told him to. And so he goes here, like this is where we find ourselves in Genesis 29. Jacob running for his life because he stole the blessing that was supposed to be for his older brother. And if this shows us anything is that Jacob has a track record for being second best. He's, born, he's the second born of his family, which really didn't count because God's promise only applies to the firstborn. But that didn't stop him, did he? He went about his way. He forced himself to take what wasn't rightfully his. He was always second choice. And now we fast forward to him meeting Rachel, somebody beautiful. And it says in 18 um, to 23, Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Seven years. It's not a joke. Like seven years is a long time. That's like one third of my total age. Um, Like that is a very long time. And then Laban says this, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And then this happens. See, I want to I stop here first. See, this concept is pretty ridiculous, right? Like, if you look at how this is written, Laban didn't ask Jacob to work for him seven years. The initiative came from Jacob. He was like, no, straight up, I'm going to work for you seven years. Just give me your daughter in return. At the very end, give me your daughter. And back then in that time, that wasn't a hard sell. You were selling yourself for a ridiculously low price at this point. Working seven years for one wife, that was a ridiculous price. Like, it was too good of a deal for Laban to pass off. And the thing is, it's weird because, like, you know how Laban tricks Jacob, right? Um, you look at Laban's answer. He says this. He doesn't really say yes to Jacob, right? He doesn't say, like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll give you Rachel after seven years. He kind of, like, goes this, like, he t- throws this curveball at Jacob where he's like, yeah, it's better if I give her to you than anyone else, right? That's all he says. He doesn't say yes, shake on it, sign a few papers and make sure that's what's going to go down. Instead, what Laban saw was that Jacob was overly zealous, 
overly eager to just like get what he wants. And so Laban, being the more sober-minded in this situation, he thinks to himself, there's an opportunity here. I could get tons of free labor from this guy, you know, like, because he's delusional. And it sounds very ridiculous, to be honest. I hate using that. I sound like a teenage girl when I say, to be honest, TPH. But (laughs) um, it sounds ridiculous, but is it really ridiculous? When When you find an opportunity to redeem yourself, to get value out of something, aren't we like that? We're overly zealous to just like jump into it and just take what we want, what we think would add value to ourselves? See, Jacob thought he found his validation, his redemption in Rachel. See, out of the two choices, she was the better choice. And all throughout his life, Jacob was always second best. He was always second choice, but not this time. If I just get the better of the two, I'll be someone. I'll be worth something. So he jumps right in. And when you read this, like any of your typical love stories, you get this very vague misconception about this. See, you just think that, you know, when Jacob um, worked seven years and it was just like a few days for him because of his love for her, that sounds sweet. I could write that on a Valentine's Day card and it would sell millions. I don't even have to like work anymore. That's a very good, that's a very good sentiment. But I submit to you that maybe Jacob wasn't really in love with Rachel as a person. Maybe Jacob was more in love with what Rachel could give her, give him. Here's this stunning, beautiful woman, and if she's by my side, people look at us, we go around town and like, you know, check out what I got. Like Rachel is like the Genesis version of a trophy wife I'm talking about, guys. Like that's, that's what she is. And here's the thing. Jacob was more preoccupied with what Rachel could give me, what Rachel could offer me. See, later on, we'll talk more about um, the topic of marriage and relationships, but um, see, God didn't design marriage to be that way. You don't marry people to see, you know, what can this person give me? And based on how much they can give me, I'll decide whether I do or do not marry that person. You go into a relationship, you go into a marriage, and the first question you ask is, how can I serve you? Okay, and we'll talk about that more later. Um, See, all throughout his life, Jacob was the one doing the most of the deception, of the scheming, of the plotting. But now the table's kind of turned on him, right? Now it's Laban's turn. It's really smooth, too, like how he does it. It's very suave. So um, at, the, at the time when uh, they were finally to be married, this is what Laban says, and you know, he doesn't give him a straight answer. And when Jacob finally realized what had happened, this is all Laban had to say to him. To Jacob's all matter, right? Like, imagine the scene. You know, you're fully convinced, seven years, eyes on the prize. You know what you're going to get at the end of seven years. And this one fateful night, all of that goes down the toilet. 
In the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Wasn't I clear about that? Why then have you deceived me? And you think like Laban would have an, a paragraph long explanation of why he does this, right? But no, he just gives him one sentence. Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And after this, like when you read the chapter again, it doesn't show Jacob like reason, but, 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 but no, like, you know, like start giving explanations. Like that's not how this chapter goes. Right after this, it just says, and then Jacob worked another seven years for Rachel. If you think about the gravity of how big this deception is, that isn't really the reaction you expect to get out of Jacob. You think he'd defend himself more, right? But see, the reason why I highlighted this statement is because when Laban said this in the original language, it struck a chord in Jacob's heart. Because when Laban says this, Jacob remembers, that's what I did. I took what was rightfully my older brother's for myself. See, news travels fast in this time and age. It's a very small world. And so when Jacob hears this, he realized that, you know, Laban's giving me a taste of my own medicine. I deserve this. And so he just humbly and quietly does the rest of his due time. See, in Jacob's life, Leah was the, you know, the gleaming image of all his longings and disappointments together. See, we're so fixated on, you know, certain goals. There's some things that we want in life, and that's all we dedicate our lives to. And then when disappointments come, it shatters your world. And here's what I want to tell you guys. Um, our disappointments do nothing but reveal the true state of our hearts. How you react in disappointments is how you really feel. It shows what you really believe in. So I don't know if you guys, my own personal story, I originally started to study as a nurse and God just closed that door multiple times, like four times to be exact. And the third time that God closed that door on me, um, I came to the conclusion that, you know, I thought this is what's good for me and God didn't give it to me. So maybe, just maybe, God may be good, but maybe he's just not good to me. But in retrospect, looking back at it, I realized that God taking away certain things in our lives is not him being mean. It's actually his grace and love for us. And we'll look at that more later. So the way this chapter of flows, the way the author of this writes it, it begins with Jacob and then it slowly shifts its focus to Leah. You know, there's a pur purpose behind that too. So if you look to Genesis 29, 27 to 30, um, this is where Leah's story starts. It begins with Jacob, but it ends with Leah. So he says, complete the week of this one 
and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. Laban gave Rachel a servant, Bilhah, to be her maid. So Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. He then stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. So we look at Leah, story of my life. You know, like, uh, pretty much Leah's entire life is just one sad story of depravity. Just whatever good thing never happened to Leah. That's the story of her life. Like, if you look at this chapter, the way this chapter introduces Leah to us, it's very short. You would think she's very insignificant in this chapter. It's just one verse. It's like, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, that's a really interesting statement. Leah's eyes were weak. You don't really use that to describe anyone nowadays, right? Like, oh, I met this girl, her eyes were pretty weak, you know, like, not going to go for that. Like, nobody hears that word anymore. Like, nobody uses that. So what does this mean? Leah's eyes were weak. Like, that was the only defining characteristic of Leah. And, and it doesn't mean she needs, like, prescription glasses. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, in a translation, like, this has been up for much interpretation, but the closest one is that she ha- probably had a defect. Her eyes. Maybe she had a lazy eye. Maybe her eyes were like bulging out. They were weak. That's all it says. But the important thing is, is how they follow this up. It says Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel, man, but Rachel, she was beautiful in form, in appearance. Like, I mean, you know, forget that. Like, you know, let's move on to Rachel here. Let's talk about Rachel for a second here. And that has been a recurring theme in Leah's life. See, in tradition, it's always the older person that gets more attention, but imagine expecting this and not happening to you. Because whenever this comes up in conversation, it's always like, oh yeah, Leah's, yeah, whatever. But then Rachel, we got to talk about this now. We just got to talk about how beautiful she is and how, how stunning she is. You know? So in Leah's life, her sister has always been a constant reminder of her shortcomings. I'm never going to be good enough like Rachel. And see, a lot of our own grief and disappointments, it usually comes from us fixing our eyes, looking to other people. That's where disappointments come. Like, you know, you think you're doing fine, and whatever it is you're doing, whether it's school or work or whatever it is, you know, you could be a pretty decent student until you see someone who gets A's in their sleep. You know, you, you think you work hard and you make decent money. You think you're doing fine and making six figures until you meet the guy that makes seven figures. You think you're doing fine until you look to other people. And w- during that time, you don't really get to appreciate what you have, but instead you sob and you cry over what you don't have. Um, So disappointment comes when we fix our eyes on other people. 
And Leia's story is sounding kind of familiar at this point, right? He, she, now Jacob comes into her own life and she seemingly finds her way out of the situation through Jacob. Like, oh, finally, here's my savior in the form of Jacob. I can finally have value to myself in the form of Jacob. And that's where she's coming. She just dives at the opportunity. But even that opportunity is kind of messed up. You think about it. See, Laban had this plot in his head. I'm going to you know, take advantage of my nephew and I will you know, deceive him just so I could marry off my firstborn daughter. And she's right there. She's like hearing all this planning and she actually said yes to this. She knew what she was getting into. But she also knew that's the only way she would ever get a husband. See, no matter how ridiculous these things sound, when it is an opportunity, when an opportunity to redeem ourselves, to add value to ourselves presents itself, we dive right into it. And see, um, Leah is a classic example of looking for love in all the wrong places. You ever heard that statement before? No? Okay, it's fine. Um, so Genesis, uh, okay, I want to talk about this for a second. Um, looking for love in all the wrong places. The word love has slowly become watered down, confused in today's society. Like it can mean anything. But for the sake of today's message, I want to make that very clear. There's a very clear definition of what love is. But here it comes in the form of Leah looking for love, looking for validation, for identity, for approval in all the wrong places. And right now, I just want to, I want to specifically talk to our ladies, like, you know, nothing against the guys, but I'll get to you guys later, but I want to talk to the ladies right now, you know, you know, them ladies, but like, okay, um, here is something that really, um, you know, bears this weight on my heart. It is when I see our ladies looking for their validation, their worth on some boy rather than a man who dies for them on the cross. See, I want, I want you guys to listen to this very carefully. And I'm going to borrow this from uh, um, Matt Chandler. He's a pastor in uh, the Village Church in Texas. So this is what he says, because he sums it up very fluently than I could ever say this. Here's what he says. If you set your standards, if you set the bar low enough, you will have morons that will walk over you over and over again. But if you set your standards high you will see men rise to the occasion. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. This isn't a Destiny's Child music video where I go, like, you know, shoes on my feet, I bought them, you know, clothes I'm wearing, I bought them. Like, it's not that. That's, what I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. You know, it's not, you know, all my women, you know, making money. Like, you know, it's not that. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. It also does not mean that when you set your standards high, that means that you'll only date neurosurgeons who um, model for Abercrombie and Fitch on their free time. Like, that's not what I mean by high standards. See, the reason why, you know, you even think that's, like, you know, remotely attractive to women is because society dictates that that's attractive to women. You know, and I was reading this morning, too. I wasn't planning on putting this in my message, but I was reading this article this morning 
to just show how big of an influence you know popular culture has on our view of what love and our ideal people are. Um, anybody know who Nicholas Sparks is? So he wrote uh, the Notebook, um, Dear John, like all these like romantic like romantic movies, and like he wrote them as books. And here's some figures about him. Like he is probably the most profound influence in modern day perspectives on love. Like, you know, you read these books, you watch his movies, and then you take something out of it. It's like you watch The Notebook. Man, you know, I've heard stories of, like, couples walking out of that and the wife looking at her husband. If you don't know The Notebook, go watch it. It's a pretty good movie, actually. But um, these couples will walk out, and then the wife will look at their husband. It's like, why didn't you build a house for me with your bare hands? Like, just ridiculous standards, you know? And just to see how profound... This guy's influence is nothing personally against Nicholas Sparks. Like, you know, I'm pretty sure he's a great guy or whatever, but this is cold hard facts. He has sold 90 million books. 90 million books sold, not printed, sold. Translated into 50 languages. And 730 million at the box office. It sells. It's a very uh, sellable idea. It's a very sellable um, concept. See, we are constantly being disciple. We are constantly being influenced by outside culture. And it defines for us what the Bible already clearly defines for us. See, um, what's I going to say? Um, and this is, this is a prevalent issue for us. We, we get so misguided by all these things and we're trying to just navigate our way through this very complex landscape. And we look at Leah's story and how Jacob just jumps into this. And we're really not that different. You know, I want to look at Leah though because her story doesn't end there. It's not a hopeless story. And there's a very specific purpose why this passage ends with Leah and not with Jacob. So towards the end of Genesis 29, this is what it says. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, in some translations it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. See, back in the day, your role as a woman was to be this, was to be a mother, to be a wife. And Leah has done nothing wrong in that department at all. She's been doing all the good things. 
we do pretty good things too, right? Like we go to church, we go to Bible study, we pray. And it's easy to justify these things when we find our validation in these things. Like I'm a pretty nice guy. You know, I'm a pretty good person. I go to church. I'm a pretty good Christian. And then it's easy to justify these things. But here's the danger. It becomes idolatrous whenever it takes the rightful place of Jesus Christ in your life. Whatever it may be. Even if it's being a mother, a husband, a wife, a son, a student, a worker, if that takes the rightful place of Jesus Christ in your life, then it becomes idolatrous. See, in this situation where Leah is just constantly unloved, even by her own husband, and see, if you notice every single child that he, she bears, the name means something. It's like, oh, this time my, my husband will finally notice me. Like, oh, this time for sure my husband will notice me. It's like, oh, this time for sure my husband will, you know, love me. Imagine you're naming your kids like that, you know, based on the situation you're in, like, you know, of being constantly unloved by your husband. But it is in this time that Leah finds God and God finds Leah. And God finds Leah in a state of unloveliness. Like nobody ever loved Leah besides God. And so when God saw that Leah was unloved, he loved her. And God didn't just, you know, when, when Leah finally understood this, everything changed, which we'll look at later in like the very next verse, but actually we'll look at it now. Okay. So this is her fourth kid. And look at how differently she talks about this last kid. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing children. All up until this point, she was complaining about, oh, my husband's so unloving, like, you know, if only he noticed me. And then all of a sudden, she makes this decision, this time I will praise the Lord. And everyone says, then she ceased bearing, as if in God's sovereign and divine plan, he realizes that, okay, Leah has finally learned her lesson. She is not going to find her validation in the number of babies she pops out for Jacob. So stop right there. She gets it. Your value is not in what you can do. And so God loves Leah with a perfect unmatched love. And see... I just want you guys, I want to challenge you guys with this. Um, imagine how differently we would treat each other if we knew that a person sitting right next to you is perfectly and unconditionally loved by God. And if you yourself were perfectly and unconditionally loved by God. This is the part where I talk to the guys. Guys, if you were attracted to someone and you knew that God loves that person perfectly, unconditionally, and infinitely more than you could ever offer them, how would that change the way you treat that person? Because it should. See, what this looks like is that our men, our women will no longer feel 
depraved of love because they will not be looking for it in their husband. They will be looking for it in God. Our men will not take advantage because they know there's nothing to take advantage of. That this person doesn't need me to give for them what only God can give them. Parents will cease to exasperate their children because they know that God loves their children more than they could ever love their children. See, this story, um, I've heard tons and tons upon tons of moral lessons that um, stem from this story. Like earlier in my own personal walk, I, I read this passage and the thing that I took from it was, you know, if you truly loved someone, you would work so hard for them and it won't be hard labor because you love them so much. Like, you know, seven years, it'll be just like a few days for you because you love them so much. And then, you know, you'd ask the men like, men, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, you know, love them and serve them. And, you know, women, wouldn't you like it if your husband, you know, loved you and served you like this? And those are all really nice things. Really, they're really nice things. Like, again, you could put it on a Valentine's Day card and sell millions. But that's not the bottom line. That's not the point of this story. See, the point of this story is even though we think we work hard for the people we love, God works infinitely harder than any of us for those who are unlovely. God works infinitely harder for the people that we don't love, that are hard to love. That God's love is different from anything else this world has to offer in the sense that it doesn't depend on how lovely we are of how deserving we are of that love. And here's another cold hard fact for all of us. It's that no single man or woman will ever fill your deepest longings that the reason why we constantly feel disappointed when we go through life and we get something we thought we wanted, get something we thought we needed, and then once we get it, immediately the value just diminishes. Have you ever like saved up for something, like something expensive like a TV or a PlayStation, or whatever it is that you save up for, right? Like, you know, while you're saving up for it, it seems like the best thing ever. But as soon as you go to a Best Buy and put it in your bag and you walk to your car, it's like, oh, great. You know, like it's, it's not that exciting anymore because the pursuit, the potential of what this could give me overweighs what it actually gives you. See, the reason why we feel constantly disappointed about these things is because we look to them to give us what only Jesus Christ can give us. That's why he always falls short. It is only Jesus who can fully validate and give us value. And so we, we look at two people who were um, pictures of this imperfect love, and so now we fix our eyes on the love of God that goes before us. It precedes us. And I want to look at Romans 5, to, 5, 6 to 8 for this one. I'll fast forward to the New Testament for you guys. Um, this is what it says about God's love. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
for one will scarcely die or rarely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Doesn't say anything about us trying to make it happen, like make it good. And then Christ finally decides, like, okay, you earn my love, let me die for you. No, it says while we were still sinners, while we were messed up, that is when Christ chose to show his love for us by dying for us. And the thing about God's love, it is too good not to show in our own lives. When you understand the love that God has for you, you don't have a choice in the matter. It just shows. It has to. Because here's what it says in 1 John. Um, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from who? From God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You cannot divorce God and love. In this love of God was made manifest. It shows among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love that we're talking about right now, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation. It's really like mouthful word, but like, for our sins, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and in his love is made, is perfected in us. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And we love because he first loved us. See, God's love, like we sang before, it um, never gives up on us. It perseveres. It sees us to completion. It sees us to perfection. He loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And see, if there's anything we learn from this passage is that his love motivates us. It sustains us. It's not just the thing that gets you started, but it's the thing that carries you on for the hard parts of life. Because here's the thing. The, thing that, the place where we see relationships work, I mean, love work itself out is in relationships. And guys, I submit to you, relationships are hard stuff. They're difficult. And they're difficult because we live in a very sinful and broken world with broken people. See, the only people we could ever hope to build meaningful relationships with are all sinners. We're all imperfect people. But if you look at your relationships through the lens of what Jesus has done for all of us, through the lens of the good news of the gospel, we realize that even the fact that our relationships are difficult, are hard, that is still God's grace and goodness and love towards us. See, what this does, you know, we're all in like different types of relationships. Like you could be in a family with your friends and people disappoint you. And when people disappoint you, when people fail you, it starts to paint a very clear picture 
of God's unconditional love for us. Because here we are trying to love imperfect people, and they just won't change. Like, they won't change for the better. Like, this situation isn't resolving itself. I've done everything I can. I've poured out my heart into this situation. I've invested so much time, energy, and emotion into this situation, but it just won't change. Now, that sounds very familiar because God poured out his love for us, every single ounce of it, on the cross. And here we are. We're still, you know, stubborn, sinful people. We just won't get it. But God's love is too big to give up. He sees us and he just keeps pouring and pouring out his love towards us. So when we're tired, when we're exhausted, when we've run out, it reminds us of how much God loved us, of how he loves us. And honestly, the, the, the love of God is not better illustrated than in Jesus Christ himself. Because as we look back in First John, it says, in this love of God was made, it was shown to us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. And what propitiation means is he takes our rightful place as sinners. He became sin for our sake. He did for us what we could never do. He paid the price that we couldn't pay. That's what that means. See, while Jacob's life's work is stained with taking what wasn't his, all of his effort was just to take what wasn't his, to take what he thought he deserved. But Jesus' life work is defined by him giving us what we don't deserve, what we could never earn for ourselves. God constantly chooses unworthy, imperfect people like Jacob and Leah. Because when you look at their story, it's a pretty messed up story, right? Like, you know, like when this happens in modern day times, there would be like a billion dollar divorce case or something going on with this. It'd be on CNN, ABC, like all the news channels. Like this is pretty messed up. But it is in this mess that God shows us his glory and his love and his goodness towards us. He constantly chooses unworthy people just like Jacob and Leah because when you look at this story, when Leah bore Judah, it is through that line, that lineage, that our Savior, Jesus Christ, will be born. So if you look at Jesus' family history, it's not like, you know, it's not an ideal family. It's not the Brady Bunch kind of like quality family, right? It's a pretty messed up family history. But is it, it is in that mess that God works these things. And he chooses weak people just like Leah to show us how Jesus would come into this world. See, Leah was the last choice, unlovely, unloved, humble, and he chose Leah because Jesus would come in that way. He would come to this world unloved, unappreciated. His friends would betray him. 
and he came in the humblest way he could possibly come. So he chooses weak people to show how Jesus would come into this world. And Jesus would come here who was made weak and ugly so he could show us to God. He could present us, his church, to God as beautiful, pure, clean. That's what Jesus does for us. 